in the in the last class uh, we I was we were entering into chapter two of Ephesians and we'll start at the beginning of chapter two tonight but I think we uh, we began something that to me is a beautiful depiction that is set forth in Ephesians 2 and unfortunately you know you try to look in places and look in commentaries and attempt to find throughout the centuries or however you know old the commentary you go to you try to find people that say have seen similar or something agreeable where you're not just floating out and people say well, where'd you get that from you know um, and you can say well just the weight of the scripture itself which is a good answer but for some they want some grounding in commentaries or things like that uh, you don't find many people that show this correlation between Ephesians 2 and Ezekiel um, 37 that we were looking at and we didn't get through the full uh, uh, scope of those those verses in Ezekiel 37 so we're going to we're going to go to that tonight and look at it uh, I think through the rest of that chapter because there's something else that's said and th it'll cause us to go a little further into Ephesians 2 that I and then as we go on in these lessons I'll go back somewhat to the beginning of chapter 2 and look at a few other things but I think the scope of Ezekiel 37 reaches and touches a lot of the things that are mentioned there uh, and one especially that we'll talk about tonight but uh, you know what so many have taught and unfortunately so because it has so many people especially with like what's going on now in the world in Israel and things that are happening it has so many um, you know questions uh, coming up because of you know the Jews and things like that I think one of the things that we fail to recognize as believers as those who search the scripture uh, is how God set forth a testimony first and then brought about a fulfillment to that testimony and even in the hearing of those things it's almost like that it, it, I don't it, maybe it doesn't go over the heads of some but but people can't reconcile that. They see God utilizing natural things. They see God utilizing natural people and nations that he created, by the way, a nation itself that he created as a testimony of his son. And, and then we see that nation existing still on the earth, and we still believe that there is some spiritual significance there that God utilized them to testify of a spiritual reality that has come and that is embodied in a person in Christ and when we don't understand that that transition it's hard to see these things like Ezekiel 37 and other prophecies in the light of their fulfillment 
in Christ. So we still have these things dangling out there yet to be realized, yet to be fulfilled. And so when we see news happen on the on planet Earth and we try to, you know, we're not we're not really seeing scripture literally fulfilled, but we are trying to take an event that we're seeing right now as, you know, contemporary to our lives and we're trying to make a scripture fit to it. Um, when the whole intent of God is recognized to be fulfilled in Christ. And even in saying that, people would have a problem hearing that. And my ultimate answer to that is, if Christ, who is God's beginning and end, his Alpha and his Omega, the summation of his in intention if it's not realized completely in him leaving not one syllable of the testimony undone then we're in trouble this and i don't think we realize how how damaging that would be if that's not true and that's why so many who still have these ideas of something yet to be fall into that category of always questioning, always wondering when will this happen, when will this be? And it, it's an it's a roller coaster ride and, and there's no need for such a thing. Israel is my son. That's a statement that is recognized to be realized in Jesus. And you know, we could spend forever on that. But if we do not understand that that was a true declaration of a, a, of a coming com uh, completion and that the Christ who abides in our soul is the full embodiment of that completion, then, you know, you will, you will tend to... I don't know. I, your, your salvation is fine. There's no nothing wrong with your salvation. It's just what of that salvation is still yet to be, still unfulfilled, or you're still looking for this and looking for that. God wants you to look into the face of the person who is your salvation, not wonder if God is yet to do and yet to fulfill and yet to complete. It is in him that we are complete. And there is a beautiful certainty that comes in the realization, not, on, not, not just scripturally, while that is absolutely necessary, but for the soul to see Jesus as the culmination of all of it, every promise, you know, everything, a land being filled with his glory and seeing Jesus as it, as that, uh, that's the thing that captivated the heart of Paul as a man who was a Jew that lived with that hope, that lived with an expectation, and yet saw Christ and was able to say, none of this matters. Not circumcision, none of the feasts, none of the holy days. And now the church today is trying to re-implement all that stuff so that we can get Jesus to come back. And Paul said, none of it matters. 
because he had seen reality in the face of Christ and was able to lay aside the testimonial elements as real as they were, as tangible as they were. He could even say in Hebrews, we've not come to a mountain that can be touched. We have come to a real spiritual fulfillment. We've come to something more real. We've come to the very thing out from which those tangible things came and those intangible, unseeable realities are much greater and much more significant and much more much more uh, awesome than the things that were a testimony of it. And this and and the true that truth remains and holds when we're looking at the truth of the resurrection. The true picture of the resurrection. Again, when we looked at Ezekiel in the light of Ephesians 2, we're seeing the true resurrection from the dead. The true resurrection of those who were dead. Those who had no hope. You remember what the when when he came to the bones, they he says this is the whole house of Israel, and what do they say? We have no hope. We are hopeless. We have no hope here. Why? We are dead, have no life. And the resurrection is just that. That the dead are made to live by the entering in of the one life of God, and that is Christ in you. And so I hope that'll be clearer as we go and uh, I'm sure with you guys it is but anyone that may listen to this recording uh, Ephesians chapter 2 let's start there and we'll continue to go Ephesians 2 chapter uh, verse 1 we're going to read through verse 5 and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, of this age, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. And then the parenthetical statement that defines it, by grace you are saved. And then I want to tie this together with a couple more places, and we'll get into Ezekiel too, but we've already been reading these verses before, but in in you know in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, earlier on from before what we're going to read, you know he says this, as in Adam, what all die, all are dead. in Christ, all are made alive um So you're not just seeing in this picture, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. This is not just a picture as some have assumed and taught 
again, because of this a futuristic view of these things, unfulfilled view of these things, this is not just one nation being restored by God. This is, as the scripture says, one nation being birthed in a day, the day of his resurrection. This is a nation coming together, and we're going to see it's made up of both Jew and Gentile. The true Israel of God, that is neither Jew nor Gentile, but is one in Christ, one new man brought about by the very person of Christ. It's not new men brought together. It's not men that have agreed on doctrinal differences. It is one life living in men who mankind who is made of Jew or Gentile, but in that body, they're neither. In that body, the defining identity of that body is Christ all in all. That is the reality of resurrection. That's the reality of salvation. Not I, but Christ says the same thing. It is not defined by any human, male, female, bond, free. None of that comes into the picture as a defining, identifying factor. What identifies that body, what identifies the reality of salvation is not the vessel in which he abides, but the one abiding in the vessel. And that's the reality of resurrection. In one man we were dead, but by the reality of this man living in us, we are made alive in Christ. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we've talked about this many times. This is, this is the picture of the resurrection. Not a future one, but the true resurrection from the dead, which is salvation, that brings a true victory to men, brings men into a victory won and wrought of God himself. In verse 45 of 1 Corinthians 15, it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The second, or the last Adam, was made a quickening soul spirit. Ephesians 2, you hath he quickened. The last Adam was a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. Same thing he tells Nicodemus. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. And as is the heavenly, so are they which are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, so also we will bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed. In a moment, twinkling of an eye, there's that instant work at the last trump and we've talked about this i'm not going to get into all this the last trump the trumpet shall sound the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for the incorruptible must put on incorruption the mortal must put on immortality and when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory Whose victory? 
See, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. It is the faith unto salvation. You are saved by grace through faith. There's the faith that overcomes the world. There is the victory. This is the victory that overcomes. This is the victory that has swallowed up death. It is this work of God that we believe into. It's a reality we hold sacred and hold confidence in. Only that. And this is when it's brought to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Now again, bringing the law into it. You wouldn't do that if this is way off into the future, way past the time where he says, I've come to fulfill the law. No, this is talking about the time frame where he has, he has put away the law by fulfilling it in himself. This speaks of also the life that puts away corruption and death, the same corruption and death that he talks about in Romans 5 that we've touched on so many times. What came in by the sin and disobedience of one man. That law looked at men and said, you are a sinner. He came in to fulfill it, to be the perfect embodiment, the very life of which it testified. And he lives in us as that law of life fulfilled. Righteousness fully come and fully perfectly fulfilled. How did that happen? The law of the spirit of life came in. It's his life. This is the picture we're seeing in Ezekiel. It is the spirit of life that comes into these dead bones and makes them live. There is no more death there. There is no more sin there. There is no more corruption because in this work Corruption has put on incorruption. Death has been swallowed up by life. This is the work of salvation, and that's what I want us to see. Ezekiel 37 is not about a future restoration of just some mere nation. It is salvation where God has caused the dead men to live, to come to life. I am come that they may have life. Why? Because he came to the dead. He came to dead people. He didn't come to any living one at all. Every, everyone he came to, his own, his people, the Jew and the Gentile, all of them dead in sin. And that's the picture. Can they live again? I have no idea. If they can, it's not it. It's I have no clue. This this looks pretty hopeless to me. Only you know this. And then he goes on. But thanks be to God that gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, stand fast, unmovable, always abounding in what the work of the Lord. The work that he accomplished. 
There's nothing for us to do that accomplishes anything beyond the goal that he has reached. I want, you, I want that to sink in. We're not working to achieve a goal. Our labor is out from the fact we have reached the goal. Anything we do, any prayer we pray, any anything of our pursuit before and toward God should be always in the light of the fact that God has already accomplished his end and his mercy toward my soul is that he has made that soul a partaker of his own end. His own perfect will realized and fulfilled. This morning, if you heard that, we talked about it. God's satisfaction reached. That's the reality of salvation. And I remember Brother Sparks, and that's what sparked, quote unquote, the the book, Knowing the Satisfied God, because he said, salvation is the good news of a satisfied God. That thought, that just those words sparked that whole study for me. I'd never thought of salvation in the light of God being satisfied. I thought salvation was me now being given the tools and the oper- and the opportunity to satisfy God with what I did. I didn't realize that the whole salvation that he had bestowed to my soul was his satisfaction. And his love toward my soul was that he made it a partaker of that which he delights in. He didn't make Raban, you know, bring me into the picture and say, now your turn. Jesus did it. Now you do it. He satisfied me. Do your best now. That is scary. And it's impossible. You can't overdo or redo or even attempt to halfway do that which he has done. The mercy and the love and the grace and the kindness of God is that he's called me to a satisfaction that he finds his own rest in. And he calls my soul to rest in it as well. And that's why as again, going back to the prayer of Paul in chapter 1 of Ephesians, that's why your eyes have to be open to see. This man, this salvation, the one who, while we were dead, quickened us, came to us in our death, in our weakness, in our incapacity, in, in our nothingness, and did for us and in us what we had no strength to do. And always the abounding truth of that is, my grace is sufficient. And we read those verses and we read Paul in those instances and where he says, you know, I glory in my infirmities and we think, or in my weaknesses, and we think it's just him praying one time where he has this situation that he's trying to get out of or be healed from or whatever it may have been. But that's the truth regardless. 
My grace is sufficient. Why? Because my strength is made perfect in weakness. Why? Why does he use that phraseology? Because there's never a moment where there's not weakness that his strength overcomes. I never have strength in the light of spiritual reality. I'm always weak. I'm always dependent. I always have no capacity in this place. He abides and tabernacles and his power tabernacles over me and is the strength that I do not have. And so Paul can say, I glory in my weakness. Now, can we do that? Because that's the whole reality of the resurrection. He lives. What does that mean? He lives in me as the life I can't live. He lives in me as a righteousness I can't achieve. He lives in me as the holiness unto God that I cannot attain to. That's his love toward us. And in the midst of the ongoing weakness and fragility of the vessel, the treasure abounds to that vessel and provides to that vessel what is never in the capacity of that vessel to offer to God. He lives in me as the only offering that God accepts. And the beauty of it is God gave that to me as the offering he accepts. And I glory there. And I live there. And that reality sustains me. It's not when I'm weak, I am strong. You don't say that because I'm in a bad situation. No, that weakness remains forever. Because you're still an earthen vessel. His strength is just this. His righteousness fulfilling in me all the righteousness God demands. That's not I but Christ. That's salvation. That is him coming to the dead and giving his life to it. That's what this is all about. It, it's not, you know, a bunch of dead people coming back to life and say, hey, maybe I need to, you know, be a Christian. It is God coming to the dead out of his love and his mercy and bringing life to that dead soul and providing to the dead his own life. That's beautiful. Yes. And then Ezekiel 37, we tie this together with it. And in verse 11, then he said unto me, again, Ezekiel 37, Son of man, these bones are the house of Israel, the whole house of Israel. And they say our bones are dried, our hope is lost, and we are cut off from our parts. Therefore prophesy, say unto them, uh, behold, O my people, I will open your graves. What did he say here in 1 Corinthians 15? O grave, where is thy victory? I will open your graves, and I will cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and brought you out of your graves. And shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I shall place you in your own land, and you shall know that the Lord has spoken it, and not only spoken it, but performed it. That's what we're reading in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what we're reading in Ephesians 2. 
He has brought you up out of your graves. While you were dead in sin and trespasses, he quickened you. He brought you up out of your grave. Now, here's the thing. that We see it expressed in those, you know, his grace toward all men. But what is described there, again, is the culmination and fulfillment of the prophecy here found in Ezekiel, what we're reading in Ephesians 2. And the language, I will open your graves and brought you up out of your graves. Do you hear, you see that language? And brought you up out of your graves. And if you know the, the Greek language, when the King James doesn't say it, some translations will use utilize the phraseology of this. But if you go into the Greek, you'll see it that God raised Jesus up out from the grave. Not just, you know, he raised him from the dead or he raised him out of the grave. He raised him up out of it. That's the language of resurrection. He's raised up out from among the dead. I will raise you up out of your graves. See, and what constitutes the being raised up out of the graves? Or raised up from the dead? This is accomplished when I shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live. See, this should give us a clearer view and a more weighty view of what it means. If you have not the spirit of God, you are none of his. You are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. Why? Because the spirit of God dwells in you. See, that's a much bigger deal than people in the church have made it. And they say, oh, you have the spirit of God? Well, of course you do. I speak in tongues. That's not what I ask. Having the spirit of God is much more than that. Having the spirit of God means that you are brought from death to life. That he has given you his own life and brought you up out of death and the grave and brought you into newness of life. That's a much bigger deal so that we can make these divisions between this church is not spirit-filled and this church is spirit-filled. No, you if you have the spirit, you are his. If you have the spirit dwelling in you, then you are no longer in the flesh. You're in the spirit. There's the transition. Adam of the earth earthy, the Lord from heaven, the life-giving spirit. It's a bigger deal than what we've made it. And this is the victory that he has brought over sin, the grave, death, the law. Because it's one man who has overcome death and sin who has broken the bondage that held all men from birth and was raised up out of it, never to be touched of it again, now impervious to its power and has taken and stripped its power from it. He came and brought death to death. And you say, well, people don't die anymore. That's not what I'm talking about. That death doesn't touch those who are already dead in Christ to sin, to death, to corruption. We're talking about a death that held us from within, a death that Adam brought upon all men. That's the death he came and overcame. 
That's the death he is no longer touched by. And that man living now unto God as God's full satisfaction, the end and culmination of his eternal purpose, his predestined will, and now he exists and lives unto God as the salvation that is now offered unto men. And says, come unto me, whoever will live. And he provides to those who believe his victory. He provides to those who live his incorruptible nature, his incorruptible seed. He provides all that he is to the souls of men who will live by him. And that's the perfect view of what we're reading in Ezekiel. They had nothing. They didn't offer one thing. He came to a, not just bones, but dry bones. There was nothing there. And they knew it. Which is, again, significant when you see him come in Matthew 5, as we've touched before, and says, Those of you who are poor in spirit, come to me. Blessed are you, because I'm here now. And I'll give you something that you have longed for, waited on, but could not attain yourself. It was out of your reach. You were dead to it. You were, uh, as he says, when you're a captive to sin, you're free from righteousness. You're so far from it, you can't even see it. There's no way to attain it because you're bound here by something contrary to it. He released you from that, bringing in his life and giving in that life all that pertains to divine reality, spiritual existence, perfection that God demands, righteousness that God is after. He provides it in his own self through the impartation and imputation of his own life. That's what he's done. And Isaiah 25 prophesied it again. 1 Corinthians 15 uses prophetic language, but is showing it to be a reality of salvation. He, this is Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the city in Revelation. He will wipe away all their tears, take away all their sorrows. And people are waiting on that to happen. That happens when death is swallowed up in victory. That happens when salvation comes by the impartation of his own life. Then the tears that were shed, and if you read it, and we don't have time to look into all of it, but it was because of a fear of death, because the fear of death came from a fear of breaking the law and being stoned and killed because you were a breaker of the law. Those tears are gone. Why? There's no fear anymore. There's no fear of breaking the law when the very righteousness of the law himself abides in your soul. There's no problem with missing the mark when the mark himself and the goal himself now abides in the soul. Those fears are laid aside. Those tears are wiped away. And the rebuke of the people, he keeps on saying, is taken away 
And it shall be said, listen to these words, this is the dead bones waiting. This is all men waiting on the salvation that God had promised. It shall be said in that day. Remember what Jesus says, in that day you shall know I am in my Father. Well, it shall be said in that, in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the picture. It is salvation coming to those who waited for him. It is salvation coming to the, the souls that were dead and longing for life. So, while we were dead, he came and wrought such a miracle and brought about such a transaction. And those who hear the voice of the Son and they come to him as hearing the voice of a trumpet, live and come from corruption to incorruption, from sin and the grave and the power of the condemnation of the law and live in the beauty and the glory of a victory he has wrought and rejoice there and know that there's no other place to rejoice except in the Lord who has wrought this work who has done such a thing I mean this is the prophecy of Hosea 13 and 14 verse 14 I will ransom them from the power of the grave and I will redeem them from death. There's the redemption. There's the, there, the word there actually means atonement. There's the work of the atonement. It's not just he forgives some sins. It, it is that if you knew what the power of sin in, in, over the souls of men was. It was death. Because of Adam's sin, what passed upon all men? Death passed upon all men. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Oh, death, I will be your plague. That's strong. That's strong language. Death, I will be your death. Grave, I will be your destruction. And I will not repent of it. That's a once and for all work of God. That's what he's done. That's what our redemption is all about. And people want to make that something else. They want to bring that into a, into a natural, futuristic view. And so while I was studying this, I found this commentary. And this is from Barnes Notes on Hosea uh, 13. And this is what he says. This work... Speaking of, I'll redeem them from the power of the grave, redeem them from death. O death, where is your, I will be your plague. O grave, I will be your destruction. He said, this was never done by God at any other time than when, out of love, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish or remain in death, but have everlasting life. 
and he came to give himself as a ransom for many. That's Matthew 20, 28. Then only was man really delivered from the grasp of the grave. These words of the prophet refuse to be tied down to a temporal, natural deliverance. I love that. These words have so much weight, they refuse just on the face of them for men to take them down to a temporal, natural level and think that that's just meaning a natural deliverance of a nation or even just deliverance from natural death. This is much greater than that. And he says these words cannot mean so little as men suppose when they express so much. We're not just talking about God delivering us from a few things. In fact, when you read things we've done, bad things we've done, that's not what sin and corrupt, that's what, what that's all about in trespasses. In fact, you read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 or verse 1 in a Young's literal translation and it says it this way, you being dead in the trespasses and the sins. He didn't do just trespasses and sins. He uses the definite article in front of him. The trespasses. The sins. And that removes it in the language itself. It removes it from just individual acts that are deemed sinful or that are deemed trespasses. It shows that all the doings of mankind, all of the things that mankind did were the ultimate response to an internal makeup, a nature that ruled men that had an origin in one singular act. All of the functions of flesh result from one seed, one originating, dominating nature. And that's, that's what we've read many times already in Romans chapter 5. We've made reference to it already. Wherefore, verse 12, Romans 5, Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then he continues at the end of chapter 5, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life, by Christ. And then he goes into chapter 6 and speaks. Now, we are not to live in sin that grace may abound because the whole thing is salvation has is a baptism or with we have been baptized with Christ into his death. What? The death we've just been reading about. His death that brought death to its death. His death that put away sin and corruption once and for all. <clears throat> and now, when we're born of an incorruptible seed, we are brought into a reality, a creation, a man in which no sin can be found. Can you not do sinful acts? Sure. But can you live in sin? No. Why? Because he has no correlation to sin at all. 
we have been brought into one who is dead to it. Therefore, we are found in one who has no sin in him. Now I know again, once if if salvation <coughs> and redemption and all of that is in any way referenced toward me, then that sounds crazy. Sounds heretical. You're just saying men have a license to sin. No, I'm saying they're dead to it. That is why if we do commit sin or trespasses, what do we have? We have an advocate. We have one that ever lives over sin, dead to sin, who makes constant intercession in that he lives unto God. He is a constant intercessor for the weakness of this vessel so we can fall upon the sufficiency of him as our life. That's true grace. It's not a license to sin. It is the fact that God has done a once and for all work that stands firm. I can't mess this up, guys. I The anchor holds me to a place I can't mess it up. I can't undo and uproot what he has done. And if it's defined in me at all, absolutely, there's a lot of mess there. There's a lot of upheaval, a lot of uprooted. There's a lot of problems. I am a problem. But he's not. You see the difference in perspective where men would say, oh, this is about you living this way instead of this is about him living in you. Living unto God as a perfect righteousness. Living unto God as the holiness that God demands. Living unto God. And then you can see, thank you, Jesus. This is not me. This is you. And when we do mess up, and guess how many of us do? We can fall on him. We can fall on him and be broken. We can come to him and again hold to the sufficiency of another in the midst of our insufficiencies, in the midst of our weaknesses. And know that nothing as to our state of being has changed because he has not changed. And he has wrought our works in us, not told us to get busy doing them. So, we're going to go further in these verses. Because we talked about it, we read, I, I still have it here, but we read in Isaiah 26 about him doing all of our works in us. And then verse 13 of Isaiah 26 says, O Lord beside thee, uh, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us. Absolutely. Sin, Adam, that's had dominion over us. But you only, by you only will we make mention of your name. Meaning we have no ability in this. We can't even mention your name except you work in us. We can't even approach you unless you bring us. That was him bidding us come. That was him doing that while we were dead. 
So, I want to go forward in Ezekiel 37. Remember we talked about the dead men shall live with my dead body. That's that's what we did in the last class. But let's let's go to the next part of Ezekiel 37. We'll start in verse 15. The word of the Lord came again unto me. And what you're going to see it's kind of kind of with the same deal when we were studying Jeremiah 31, 32, 33. And we saw Jeremiah 31 and then Jeremiah 32 and how they say the same thing, what God would do, but just in two different pictures. It's not two different things. It's just two different ways of seeing the same thing. Same way here. You see this dead bones who have life. And then they come as one because they have one life living in them, one spirit living in them. And you you recall in the in Ephesians it says, or in the scripture it says, we have access by what? One spirit unto God. We don't have access as a Jew to God and then a Gentile to God. We have access unto God by one spirit. Why? Because the one spirit, Christ himself, is our access unto God. There is no other. I am the way. I'm the door. Nobody has a different way here. Nobody has a different access. That body is has existence in the sight of God because that body exists by the very life of his son no other way so you're going to see the same thing here in Ezekiel 37 15 the word of the Lord came again unto me saying moreover thou son of man take thee one stick and ride upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel his compassions and then take our companions compassion his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Now, here's this divided. You're seeing two divisions. You remember they were divided into two different kingdoms, had the ten tribes and then the two, and they were divided for all this time. And now we're going to see God bringing them together, joining them. Again, same picture here as we've just seen in the coming of one spirit living in these dead bones. He doesn't make divisions. He's just showing the only way there's life in any of them and the only way they can stand and have life at all is that one spirit abides in them. My spirit dwells in them and brings them to life. They live. My spirit will dwell in you. Well, this is the same thing. Now he's going to show that this same picture is this bringing together of the divided tribes and making one house, making one kingdom. It's a beautiful picture. But it correlates with something that I find most people don't, don't want to go there. But this is exactly the picture he's showing, and we'll see it in Ephesians 2. But let's let's go on. Verse 17 of Ezekiel 37. Join them one to another, these two sticks, and join them one to another into one stick. 
and they shall become one in thine hand. And when and when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Will, will thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou ridest shall be in thine hand before their eyes, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. Now, one part here that I thought was very interesting, that the word stick used here, the primary definition of it is a tree. Not just a stick. It's the word tree in the Hebrew. It actually means a tree. And I find it interview interesting in view of the fact that the joining of them one to another was what? In relation to a tree. We're going to read that in Ephesians 2. God wrote their names on a tree and brought them together and made them one in a tree. <laughs> Two trees made them one tree. How did that happen? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 16. That he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. Having slain the enmity thereby. Because there was that division, that enmity there too. But again, this is a picture not just of two Jewish tribes. This is a picture of a division that was even more significant and goes into exactly what Paul is going to say in this chapter and the other chapters in Ephesians as well. So he took these two separate kingdoms, wrote their names on sticks, put these sticks together and says, now I'm going to make them one. Now, again, Ephesians 2.16 says that. He reconciled both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this uh, in verse 24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your soul. And we'll see that in a moment, because this is something that he'll say, um, to, to them in Ezekiel in a moment, in verse 22. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and read that. Ezekiel 37, verse 22. I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king unto them all. 
And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more, neither shall they defile themselves any more with idols, nor with detestable things, nor with their transgressions. But I will save them out of all of their dwelling places where they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, this is verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd, one shepherd, one bishop, see, one king. This is a beautiful picture of God bringing together Jew and Gentile. I'm telling you, People don't want to see that because they still want it to be these kingdoms coming together and a natural restoration. I'm showing you that in that picture, God is showing the distinction between Jew and Gentile being brought into one body, one man, and being brought and partakers of one life. We'll see that in a moment. Took me forever to find someone that agreed with me. I finally found somebody that actually said it. Because nobody wants to say that because it takes all of the futuristic out of it, takes all of a natural nation being restored out of it, and makes it a reality of salvation now in Christ Jesus. So in verse 24 again, Ezekiel 37, David my servant shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my judgments, observe my statutes, and do them, fulfill them. How is that possible? Christ in you the righteousness of the law fulfilled they shall dwell in the land i have given unto jacob my servant wherein your fathers have dwelt and they shall dwell therein even they and their children and their children's children forever and my servant david shall be their prince forever not the natural david come back from the dead but christ as the one god said this is the david that will sit upon my throne forever just like the priest who by reason of death had to continually die and then another one takes their place the the true david as promised sits upon the throne of this eternal kingdom and there is one king that rules this land the land that has one name in it and it is israel the prince of god himself israel is my son Ezekiel 34, before all this in 37, says this, uh, verse 22, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between the sheep and the sheep. Remember, we, we went through that one time before and how it refers back to what is said between the, sheeps and the sheep and the goats. Same thing said. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I Listen to these words. I will make with them a covenant of peace, and will banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell safely and sleep in in the wilderness and sleep in the woods that they would be safe secure and take that to john chapter 10 verse 16 you can write all these down There's a lot of verses 
Take that to John 10, verse 16 and 17. Jesus said to them, I have other sheep that you that are not of this fold. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Gentile. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there would be one flock and one shepherd. And it becomes obvious again, Jesus is coming to accomplish this very thing that's prophesied in Ezekiel. I'm showing you, these parts of Ezekiel we like to divorce from one another and make them separate issues is declaring the same salvation to the whole of God's people. He came to accomplish this. He's coming as the David that was prophesied to sit upon the everlasting throne of God and rule over the whole house of Israel and be their shepherd and feed them and rule the land. And then in verse 26, you read that. In, now this is Ezekiel 37, verse 26. He said the same thing here in verse uh, chapter 34. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. This is chapter 37. Same thing's being said. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And I listen to these words. I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My tabernacle shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forever. Now, as I was reading some of these things, the Keelan Delich commentary made a very beautiful statement with regard to this part of 37 and basically you know he was saying this uh, what is prophesied here in, in Ezekiel 37 and he says it's in perfect harmony with Jeremiah 31 but in much more granular detail and it's in a more detailed picture how he's doing these things the body coming forth out of the out of from from bones to a living body and then the two sticks being made one and we're going to read the verses again relating to that but he says this is a beautiful harmony with Jeremiah 31 you remember we recently did a study of Jeremiah 31 32 and 33 and it is absolutely true because Jeremiah 31 speaks of this true redemption and restoring by declaring that God's God would satiate or satisfy the soul of these people with his own goodness. And then it goes into the end or basically the end of that chapter and says I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. That is a covenant of peace. As Romans 5 would say, having peace with God. Why? We stand in the grace of God, having peace with God. 
That is the covenant that he has made with us. It is his new covenant written in our hearts. It is the new covenant where his, his very life is the fulfilling of the demand of God in our soul. Where he brings about and, and, and accomplishes in us all works that are demanded. All that God is requiring, he fulfills it. That's his covenant of peace. That's his new covenant being made with the house of Israel. And that's exactly, and this is the thing I want us to see, not separated into just another, you know, theological lesson or, you know, compartmentalize it over in this place away from this. This is what it means to be quickened with him. This is what it means to be brought from death and corruption unto life and incorruption. This is what has happened. It is God bringing a covenant of peace within his house so that we could rejoice in his salvation. That God that we have waited on, the salvation that the soul has always longed for because the soul of men, whether Jew or Greek, was always designed to be in field with this very life. And the soul, whether you know it or not, was not is not, the, the, the desire for the life of God is not a Jewish phenomenon. It is a phenomenon common to all souls created of God that cries out for the living God. And this is the very work of salvation, that it's brought into the souls crying out for the living God, the very life of God itself. And the fulfillment of these chapters, Ezekiel 37, look at it, Revelation 21. This is, I saw a new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth were passed away. There was no more sea. And I saw the holy Jerusalem, the new, or the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle or sanctuary of God is with men and he will dwell with them says the same language he will be their God and he will be with them and be their God and he shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death and no crying and no sorrow neither shall there be any pain for the former things are passed away what is that The old things are passed away. The new has come. And then you have the one upon the throne in the next verse saying, Behold, I make all things new. This is salvation we're talking about. This is heaven itself. This is a place where the Lamb and his glory feels it. And he said unto me, These words are true and faithful. He said unto me, It is done I am Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end, and I'll give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Notice the language and how it correlates with these prophecies that we've been reading. 
connects beautifully with all these things, former things passed away. And I recognize, again, so many read these verses uh, that are that we've been reading in this consideration, and they do so futuristically, dispensationally. And so that makes it difficult when you're expressing these things in the light of a new covenant, a covenant of peace, and the light of a fulfilled reality in Christ that we are presently partakers of. So I'm not at all attempting to convince people regarding this. Even though it's true, I'm not going to try to convince anybody of it. I think if we examine this in the light of Scripture without those preconceived eschatological leanings, we have to see the weight of these things. So if you look at what he says about the two sticks and what he would do in the, again, same thing, bringing back about one body that was dead by the entering in of his spirit, bringing about one the division of two now into one body making them one now we can read these latter parts of Ephesians 2 in the light of that but now in Christ Jesus you who were sometimes afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ for he is our peace what did he do he's making a covenant of peace with us who hath made both one has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, of two, one new man so making peace, so that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity. What is, how did he make peace? He didn't just bring both sides together and say, now you better agree to get along. Agree to a ceasefire between your hatred for one another and be good Christians to each other. That's not the point. Again, it's not about the vessel. It's about the life now that defines the spiritual stand and condition of the vessel. That's why the vessel, Jew or Gentile, does not matter. The, that which divided has no correlation to any of this. One spirit makes this so. One work of God brings in this peace. It is not I but Christ, and that is true whether it's Jew or Gentile. One body, one life, one head, one Lord, one righteousness, and he's made to that body all of it. Because he's the one that makes it so. And so it goes on and says, He came, in verse 17, He came and preached peace to you. He came preaching peace to you who were afar off, that's the Gentile, and to them that were nigh, the Jew. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you're no more strangers, foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God. There's the house of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for the habitation of God through the Spirit. Now listen to this in the light of one more place. Isaiah 57. 
Verse 19. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is afar off. Remember, he came preaching peace to him that was afar off. Peace, peace to him that is afar off and to him that is near, saith the Lord. And I will heal him. Who are you going to heal? Those that are far off and those that are nigh. Remember, Peter again, looking to this work of God, by his stripes you are healed. There's the healing that he has brought about. Now, this commentary that I found, because <coughs> this takes in, again, Ephesians 3 says it, that you would know the mystery that I have, the knowledge of this mystery, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. This is not just for Jew. This is for Jew and Gentile. This is for all men, all souls that were created for this life. And I found this, and you know, we'll, Tom Nettles is the one that wrote it, um, and I want you to hear what he wrote. He says, the one people from two sticks imagery represents the church, while it also, in part, speaks of the redemption of the remnant of Israel while they were in captivity. He's looking at their captivity under Babylon. He says it was a partial uh, prophecy concerning their deliverance from that, but he says ultimately it speaks of the church. And then he says Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is a vivid description of the work of Christ in reconcile these two people of the world through the cross. I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. And then he correlates that to Ephesians, what we just read. He himself is our peace, who hath made both one, broken down the middle wall of separation to create one out of two, one new man, that he may reconcile both to God in one body through the cross. The two nations have been put into one body, a dwelling place, a habitation of God. No longer two, but now one. But not one because they are still separate, but agree to be together. They are one because just as Ezekiel 37 says, one spirit makes these bones live. One life lives in it. And that, if you see the whole picture of Ephesians, that is the grace and mercy of God that Paul is going to address in this whole thing. That is the grace of God that in that work has made us partakers of all spiritual blessings, accepted in the Beloved, and partakers of a salvation that is perfect and complete as his body that is filled with the fullness of him. And so, uh, I hope <laughs> I hope that made sense. Again, when you start, you know, a lot of these places are very hard for people to hear correlated as a finished work, as a, as a 
reality of salvation because they hold it into such esteem as something in the future. But um, I hope you can see it in the light of what Paul is writing there. We're done. Amen. Thank you.